marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry. The activists. The medical professionals. The legislators. The economists. The regulators. The lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the COIN Podcast Network. As part of a growing trend toward prohibition, Oregon outlawed cannabis in 1923. Fifty years later, Oregon was the first state in the nation to decriminalize possession of up to an ounce in 1973. Fast forward to 1998, and voters passed the Oregon Medical Marijuana Act, legalizing cannabis by prescription for medicinal use. Sixteen years later, in 2014, two full years after Colorado and Washington legalized recreational use, Measure 91 passes in Oregon, making it the third state in the union to legalize the growth, possession, sale, and use of recreational cannabis. And a billion-dollar industry is born. In this inaugural podcast, we'll speak with Anthony Johnson, who was the chief petitioner of Measure 91. We'll talk about how we got here, what's working, and what isn't. And we'll look at the road ahead for Oregon's budding cannabis industry. You're listening to Mainstream Media. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. In 2014, Anthony Johnson was the director of New Approach Oregon, the group responsible for crafting and passing Measure 91, looking at the history of the issue in our state and the difficult task of garnering a majority of voters to agree with his group's vision for our state. I wanted to know why the legalization of cannabis was and still is such an important issue to him. Yeah, I grew up um, with a stereotypical kind of Asian tiger mom, where I would, you know, get in trouble for having too many, you know, A minuses. And so I was given basically two choices in life. I could be a doctor or a lawyer. And I went the uh, legal route. I planned on going to law school. I planned on being 
what I thought in my mind was a stereotypical kind of general practice attorney that would take on a variety of cases. I didn't plan on becoming an activist, but I became an activist while in college at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, because I saw uh, my black friends treated more harshly than my white friends when it came to cannabis offenses. I saw my white friends written tickets sent to city court where they wouldn't lose their financial aid, where I saw my a black friend arrested, handcuffed in front of the dorm, marched out, and then sent to state court where he would lose his financial aid. A couple other encounters with law enforcement, I saw African-American friends just treated more harshly in those encounters. It really jarred me. I started doing research into the drug war, uh, the war on cannabis, and what I learned about who's getting arrested, the rates of who's getting arrested, medicinal benefits of cannabis, the industrial benefits of hemp. It really seemed to me a no-brainer that not enough people were working on. And it was something in criminal justice reform that we could make an impact in soon. And so I started working on my first local decriminalization measure in the city limits of Columbia, Missouri back in 2003. Those measures were successful at the citywide level in 2004. I moved to Oregon uh, in 2004, passed the bar in 2005, started practicing criminal defense and had a couple encounters of clients going to to prison for cannabis. Uh, one client got sentenced to 18 months in prison for three ounces of cannabis. Another client got sentenced to 18 months in prison for 40 pounds of cannabis. And uh, both of those cases really jarred me. And to be frank, the fact that these nonviolent people were going to spend more than a year in prison, and I, I'm in the courtroom standing next to them while their loved ones are crying, frankly, was going to turn me into an alcoholic. I told my wife I was going to go home. I was going to drink until I forgot that prison existed. And I did a kind of deep soul dive. You know, could I practice criminal defense for 20, 30, 40 years of my career, see nonviolent marijuana offenders, drug offenders go to prison and be able to handle it? And I decided that I couldn't. And a job opened up working for a nonprofit that was working on cannabis issues. And so that's uh, how I got my start in cannabis politics here in Oregon. And I'm really pleased that Oregon has taking a pioneering route and ending unnecessary arrests and really turning the page to invest in people instead of just building more prisons. So it started as a social justice issue, but after your research, you felt there were multiple benefits in your eyes to legalize cannabis for medical use, for recreational use, and for industrial use? Definitely. It started as a social justice issue, civil libertarian issue. And then as you learn more about the benefits of hemp, the benefits of medicinal cannabis, the jobs and revenue that could be created, it really and you really see how ending cannabis prohibition and legalizing and regulating cannabis could impact a lot of people's lives in a positive manner. You moved to Oregon in 2004. When did you start working for the nonprofit? So it was about 2007. So there's a seven-year gap between when you start at the nonprofit and you pass Measure 91. Now, if I'm not mistaken, during that time, one measure was put to voters and failed. And then here comes Measure 91, which would make Oregon only the third state to legalize recreational cannabis behind Washington and Colorado, who passed their laws in 2012. Did your organization have time to study their new laws, look at the strengths and weaknesses of each of their approaches, and use it to craft the framework of Measure 91? 
Uh, yes, we were able to study a lot of what Washington and Colorado had done. We'd also seen Measure 80 didn't pass at the ballot box, but got about 47% of the vote in 2012 here in Oregon. And even before Measure 80 didn't pass to legalize adult use cannabis, in 2010, I was a co-chief petitioner of a measure that was going to legalize medicinal cannabis dispensaries that did not pass, that we uh, ended up passing through the legislature uh, shortly thereafter, but that actually did not win at the ballot box. So we're able to learn lessons from all of those campaigns, both the uh, two statewide measures that didn't pass here in Oregon and the successful measures that passed in Colorado and Washington. And Measure 80 really gave us a ground floor of, we knew 47% of voters were likely to vote to legalize cannabis in Oregon. And so how do we get at least 3% more for, for the victory? And so we could go from there and we definitely took lessons from both Washington and Colorado as well. And that leads me to my next question. Why does Measure 91 pass in 2014? What had changed in the two years since the failed Measure 80? How did you get 56% of voters to say yes? We want legal, regulated, taxable, recreational cannabis in Oregon. Well, uh, Colorado and Washington changed coming afterwards, so that helped because they're... It's always fear of the unknown with a lot of swing voters. You learn that in initiative petition politics. Uh, a lot of undecideds are going to swing to no, particularly if you are doing something that seems radical, controversial. They don't know what the consequences are going to be. And people could see that the sky didn't fall in Colorado and Washington. They could see jobs were being created. Tax revenue was being generated, going to good causes. And so that helped. Also, previous attempts actually all the way back to 1986, I believe, in Oregon, actually put a measure on the ballot all the way back then to legalize cannabis. And then with Measure 80, both of those measures didn't have limits or a regulatory framework. So Measure 80 would have legalized the possession of cannabis to an unlimited amount. It would have legalized growing an unlimited amount. And so I think having parameters around that, we legalized, you know, eight ounces, we legalized cultivating four plants, and we put in a state agency, uh, for better or for worse, the Oregon Liquor Control Commission. Personally, I believe has done an okay job regulating cannabis. I imagine we'll go into that uh, a little bit, but, you know, they have experience regulating alcohol. They have experience making sure people are checking IDs. And so I think the those safeguards put in place really boosted us. And I, I don't think it can be discounted that people could see that people in Oregon could drive up to Washington, purchase cannabis, send tax dollars to Washington state, or we could keep those tax dollars here. As an observer, I also think you took a different approach in how you presented the argument in 2014. It was, for lack of a better term, a very mature argument presenting all the issues. The campaign never felt like the message was, we want it legal so we can get high. This was an argument about social injustice, a failed drug war, the economic impact, both in tax revenue and the private sector, job creation. It felt like a logical argument as opposed to an emotional one. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And one thing that I've discovered campaigning all across the state of Oregon is to me that swing voters that are really paying attention, whether I am talking to the local like Elks Club or Chamber of Commerce, people 
are by and large practical realists. And I think people living in the Northwest, uh, living in a place with legal medical cannabis voted in in 1998 with legalized cannabis in Washington state, they understand that people are going to use cannabis. Are they going to use it illegally? Are they going to use it legally? Are they going to use it in a way that creates a nuisance where people aren't checking IDs and we are not only not collecting tax revenue, we're wasting tax revenue going after these people or can we do it in a regulated manner where people are checking IDs and we are generating tax revenue that's going to fund education, public safety programs, drug treatment programs, things like that. So election day happens, measure 91 passes, now what? You've slain the proverbial dragon, but now the real work begins. What role did you play in those early months and years? It passes in November of 2014. It doesn't become law until July of 2015. So that's only eight months to put everything into play. What is your role at that time? So at this point, uh, my role was lobbying at the legislature and various city councils across the state on a couple of fronts. One I enjoyed and the other I did not enjoy. The one that I enjoyed was the uh, criminal justice front, and that was helping further decriminalize and reduce criminal punishments for uh, marijuana offenses, which we managed to do. It was further allowing expungement of past offenses that used to not be able to be cleared off people's records. I feel like we had we have more work to be done on, on that note, but great progress there. The part where I had less fun, and that was the business aspects of it. And so immediately as chief petitioner, as spokesperson, a lot of a liaison to a lot of people in the cannabis industry, all of a sudden I'm in the middle of a lot of political battles with a lot of money on the line. All of a sudden we have outdoor growers wanting certain laws versus indoor growers wanting certain laws, in-state farmers wanting certain laws, out-of-state farmers and corporations wanting certain laws, certain cities wanting to ban dispensaries and other businesses while others don't, making sure we keep uh, taxes at a reasonable level, just hearing everybody out on security precautions that are needed, all these regulations to put in place to make sure the federal government doesn't strike down the law or infringe upon the ability to carry out the law. And so the, the business aspects was a real fight. And we went from over the years, a handful of us at the state legislature to all of a sudden several lobbying groups representing different areas, different different aspects of uh, the industry. And all of a sudden individual companies, including multinational corporations, you know, headquartered in Canada or, you know, and uh, getting involved in the legislature. So all of a sudden you have all these players, all these lobbyists, everybody wanting different aspects to protect their segment of the industry. And then I think ultimately there's all these compromises being made and kind of what gets spit out is from the sausage making process tends to be like something that no one is happy with. And then some of those battles were carried out through at city councils and county commissions all across the state that are still uh, going today. We still have a few so-called like dry counties and dry cities, whereas most cities and counties have allowed licenses and have tax revenue, but that's uh, kind of an ongoing battle around that. So uh, I was pleased to uh, help further reform criminal justice penalties and change uh, criminal laws. The business aspects. Wow, that was a, uh, you know, it's still an ongoing battle today. And I think it's still something that uh, a lot of people in the industry still aren't happy with as we try to get it right, at least the best that we can. In the seven years since Measure 91 has passed, what has been done well on the implementation side, in your opinion? And what's the top priority that still needs to be addressed? 
Yeah, I think if you look at the kind of macro level or big picture, I think a lot of things have gone well as far as ensuring we have regulations in place that ensure dispensaries are checking IDs, for instance. By and large, we've had good marks on that. Every once in a while, there's been a bad report or report that's not as good as we would want. But then the industry oftentimes kind of polices itself. Like, hey, we need to shape up here. We need to do better than alcohol, basically, because we are dealing with a substance that's um, federally illegal. But by and large, uh, the cannabis industry has done a better job than the alcohol industry when it comes to uh, making sure we check IDs when the OLCC does minor decoys operations. And then you just see the general jobs that have been created and the revenue that's been generated by the state. And by and large, a lot of that money going to important programs that are good for the state. So I think by and large, there's a lot of things to be proud of. I think when you look at it at a smaller micro level and you see all of the hoops, regulatory hoops and obstacles that small farmers, that small mom and pop businesses have to go through, I think that we need to do and do a better job of helping Oregon-owned businesses, Oregonian-owned small businesses. To me, that's on the same front as far as helping communities that have been disproportionately harmed by the drug war. So that's communities of color, ensuring that all people of color, uh, people who don't have the means to get their record expunged because they can't hire an attorney, we need to do a better job making sure they're their records are cleared. Uh, we need to ensure that people that don't have access to millions of dollars or shareholders that can generate revenue from the Canadian stock market to fund things that small businesses that are led by Oregonians can survive and thrive in this market and not have it all foreign-owned corporations running uh, the industry in Oregon. And additionally, I think we need to do a better job of taking care of patients. There are still 20,000 to 30,000 registered patients and too many patients live on fixed income. They live on their social security check and their disability check, and they can't necessarily afford cannabis at the stores, particularly products that cost a lot, such as like full extract cannabis oil and things like that. And I think that the state too often views the cannabis program as strictly a revenue cash cow. And I think we have at times lost sight of the patients that really need it to help them take fewer prescription drugs, fewer narcotics, fewer addictive and more deadly painkillers, poor cancer patients that could use uh, full extra cannabis oil or other cannabis products to alleviate their condition. So taking care of patients, helping small businesses and helping uh, communities that have been disproportionately harmed by the drug war and the war on cannabis. Those are uh, three issues we need to do a better job on and I hope we do in the future. Is there anybody currently lobbying to use that state tax revenue and redirect some of it to address those three issues? So there is, um, uh, yeah, there's a coalition that has worked for a uh, social equity bill that has uh, managed to get hearings, managed to get quite a few sponsors, but it's something that has brought in a lot of people from the industry. And it's something that, yeah, there is definitely a coalition of folks working on that. There's a nonprofit called Compassionate Oregon that represents the medical community and is always advocating for patients. So there are definitely uh, groups that are uh, working on, on these issues. Let's talk about the OLCC, the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission. You say they're doing a, quote, good job, but then you also talk about a litany of regulatory hoops that small owners or dispensary owners face. Who has been involved in the evolution of cannabis regulation in Oregon? And 
Who is involved in minor course correction if a rule or regulation is deemed to be unintentionally harming the industry? Yeah, I mean, the primary players, you know, currently that I'm aware of, the Oregon Retailers of Cannabis Association, there's the Oregon Cannabis Association, the the Oregon Sun Grown Growers Guild, and Compassion Oregon on the, on the medical side. And then there are individual companies that hire their own lobbyists as well, and they each have their certain point of view. And a grower that's been growing outdoors in Southern Oregon for a long time is going to have a different opinion than somebody that's growing indoors in Portland who's going to have a different opinion than somebody who represents shareholders in Canada. And so it becomes a difficult dance really at the legislature because, you know, a lot a lot of people in the legislature don't know much about cannabis or the industry. So they're hearing a lot of different voices and it gets further complicated by the fact that it's illegal federally. I think um, one thing that the state and the OLCC and on one hand, you can't blame them. I believe they've been too fearful of the federal government and they've been really wary of of having, say, too many licensees or having a so-called like oversupply problem when I think that the OLCC and the state really should have regulated very much more like uh, alcohol, very much more like we do our microbreweries and winery industries and really should have regulated as if it was legal federally because the federal government was not going to shut down the program. No matter who's in the White House from here on out, especially the cat's out of the bag, they're not going to strike down these laws. And so we need to operate what's best for us and not always be worried about the federal government. And there are too many people, I think, that have been wary of that. And and in many respects, there have been too many rules and regulations put in place that treats cannabis as if it was plutonium versus more akin to how you should have treated it similar to wine grapes and hops. Do you believe that current regulations here in Oregon will be revisited and revised if and or when the federal government removes cannabis from the Schedule One prohibition list? I do. I think that will change the debate greatly in Salem and with the regulatory body when you no longer have to worry about federal law when dispensaries are able to have bank accounts and access to financial services and pay their taxes the same way as other businesses do and you're not dealing with a bunch of cash. Also, as more states legalize, and I think more states will legalize when the federal government moves as well to deschedule, that all of a sudden the illicit market value of cannabis plummets. So I think that will that will help as well. So I do see there being kind of a new wave of how we look at cannabis when it's no longer illegal federally. And I think that goes both kind of business-wide and politically, but also culturally. And I think that Oregon will start to look at promoting the cannabis industry the same way we promote the winery industry and microbrewery industries and, and look at it as something that we're proud of as an entire state instead of kind of viewing it as a syntaxful thing that we happen to put up with. So this being an industry in its infancy, when do you anticipate an equilibrium where the foundation is solid, the compromises between the industry factions have been agreed upon when everyone's getting their fair share and we simply move forward as an industry? Does it take the federal government descheduling cannabis 
Or can we find that equilibrium while we wait? Yeah, I think by and large, it's going to take the federal government because until the federal government allows cannabis businesses to have access to the same banking and financial services as any other industry, that's always going to give a huge leg up to companies out of Canada. Companies out of Canada have ways to raise funds through their, like, you know, their shareholders. They have an end around as far as the uh, taxation goes that they pay, you know, here in the United States, if you are fully within the United States, there's a provision in the IRS tax code called the 280E tax provision that doesn't allow you to deduct normal expenses like any other business. And so it puts your tax rate at 60, 70, 80%, like effective tax rate that Canadian corporations have a way of getting around because they're not incorporated here. So they can pay people and write those off in Canada because they have executives in Canada or management staff in Canada. So they have a huge advantage over kind of our local small businesses. And you can't really fault small business owners that are struggling to make ends meet, paying an effective tax rate over 60, 70% to want to sell to a Canadian corporation. So my hope is that by the time we do get a level playing field, by the time the federal government ends federal cannabis prohibition, we still have a handful of Oregonian owned cannabis businesses around. So I think in the meantime, the state really needs to look at investing in Oregonian-owned businesses to make sure we keep some small businesses around and that the revenues that are brought in by cannabis companies are actually kept in the state and not going across our state lines or even into another country. What's the next step, not only for the cannabis industry, but using the framework you developed, could we see legalization of other substances? Where does this industry go from here? Yeah, I see uh, the cannabis industry moving on several fronts. I think working to protect patients as much as possible. I think either statewide or individual amongst dispensaries. I'm, I'm hopeful that dispensaries that agree to help take care of low-income patients, farmers and extract manufacturers that help that agree to assist or give discounts to low-income patients, that the cannabis community and consumers will support those companies and also uh, support the work of organizations like Compassion Oregon that's working on behalf of patients. Then you got the criminal justice front. We still have a lot more work to be done to ensure that people whose criminal records can be expunged do get expunged. Uh, too many people have been left out of that because they don't have the ability to hire an attorney or get to a, a clinic. So um, I think working towards automatically expunging offenses from people's records when they're nonviolent cannabis offenses or nonviolent drug offenses in general, I think as the industry evolves and we continue to see record-breaking profits in the cannabis industry, I think continuing to examine where the tax revenue goes to ensure that we're investing in communities of color, we're investing in small Oregon businesses, we're looking at other ways that the tax revenue can do good work in addition to the good work that's already funding drug treatment, recovery programs, harm reduction programs, education, public safety services. So continue to examine that. And then additionally, I think helping the framework and the movement to further roll back drug war penalties, be it into psychedelics. We're seeing therapeutic psilocybin come online within the next couple of years. And I think that movement around both 
the medical use, the civil libertarian use, potentially eventually the uh, legalization of certain substances like psilocybin can have a lot to learn from the uh, cannabis industry. And so I think the cannabis industry will have a big role to play into that as Oregon looks to be a leader in rolling back the harms of the failed drug war as well. The chief petitioner of Measure 91, Anthony Johnson. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Mainstream media. We are living in the infancy of this industry. In the coming episodes, we'll speak with medical professionals about the benefits and risks and research of cannabis. We'll talk to the lawmakers on the forefront of federal cannabis reform. We'll go behind the scenes of the regulatory authority. We'll look at the social impact, both good and bad, and we'll follow the tremendous amounts of revenue. I'm Travis Bob. Thank you for listening to the Mainstream Weedia Podcast on the Coin Podcast Network.